0: That one letter of encouragement from that one mentor, completely unsolicited, didn't expect it, didn't didn't know it was coming, changed my the entire arc of my career. Because I got rich, I have changed quite a few other people's lives. I helped another cartoonist get started you know, paying it forward. Pearls Before Swine uh, is a comic that's one of the, one of the biggest ones. Wow. Ever, and I helped him with his, his career. But that also gave me the platform that allowed me to talk about President Trump in a way that probably had some impact on the outcome. So this one bit of advice from 1988 is still rippling through the universe and it's getting bigger, not smaller. So if you're wondering should I give this little bit of affirmation to somebody who, who deserves it? And you're thinking it, if you're thinking it, that you could give this person a little affirmation, little, little encouragement and you don't say it, it's almost immoral. Wow. Right? Because the benefits it's free to you. doesn't cost you a thing to give that little bit of encouragement. If you mean it, you know, only if you mean it and it can, it can change the world. Um, and that's not an exaggeration in the bit.
1: Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with
0: Nikki Baloo. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.
1: Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an incredible guest lined up for you today. He is the legendary creator of the Dilbert comic strip. And in the past year and a half, two years, he has become known also as one of the preeminent experts on the subject of persuasion. And his brand new book, Win Bigly Persuasion in a World Where Facts. Don't Matter, is a fascinating study of persuasion practiced by a master persuader. And we're going to spend today's show finding out all about Scott's expertise and genius in the subject of persuasion and on his book. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, sir. So, Scott, our listener, our audience, are coaches, consultants, business owners. These are people who are looking to take their business, their success to the next level, and they're fascinated to learn from you, our guest, what are the ways in which you've utilized your expertise to create a platform, to create success for yourself. And you've got a really amazing and interesting backstory. Please share that with our listener.
0: Well, most of you know me as the creator of the Dilberg comic strip, but I'm also a trained hypnotist. I learned hypnosis when I was in my 20s. I'm certified. And I studied. Persuasion in all of its various forms for decades as part of what I did for a living first in the corporate world and and now as a writer because all of those persuasion skills are terribly important if you're trying to communicate in writing or speaking both of which I do and uh, here I'm talking about everything from marketing to sales to you know design uh, persuasion is in a lot of different. Uh, lot of different fields and I've dabbled in all of them. So I don't call myself an expert. I call myself a commercial grade persuader, meaning that I use persuasion successfully in my job. And I thought that the president's persuasion skills were so unique and so, so strong that it was worth uh, talking about them so people could follow that show while they were following politics at the same time.
1: You know what? And that's fascinating because I don't know of anybody else who's done that, not just for the the past presidential election, but in, frankly— ever since I've been following presidential politics. And my my background is I went to Georgetown University back in the late 80s and early 90s. I studied at the School of Foreign Service. I did my master's degree there. And prior to that, I did my undergraduate in economics and political science. So I've been fascinated by the Cold War, American politics, and presidential elections. No one's ever done this before. What gave you the idea to do this? What made you decide to enlighten the rest of us about this?
0: Well, really, it was the unique skill set that I noticed in candidate Trump. And he'd always been on my radar. Everybody – I think everybody knew who Donald Trump was before – Stuff, but I never really paid too much attention. And when I started hearing him talk, uh, I would see one technique after another that I recognized from, you know, good persuasion technique. But I also thought that the public, who largely would be untrained in this field, would see it as random or, you know, even crazy. And you saw that, in fact, the people who are not trained in this field concluded exactly that and were just scared of him. But if you talk to the people who are actually experts, and I would say experts above my level of expertise, they'll tell you the same thing. They'll say, if you talk to a professional linguist or a cognitive scientist, they will tell you, yeah, you're missing the show here. There is rock solid persuasion technique of the kind that you don't normally see. It's very rare. And very powerful. And if you didn't see that, you would have an entirely mistaken idea of what's happening right in front of you. You know, that's
1: that's very true. Here, here's my thought of it. I'm, I've been following Donald Trump's career for a long time. I mean, he he'd been a motivational speaker as well as a successful entrepreneur. His show, The Apprentice, especially the first couple seasons, were I think a fascinating study in business and and how to get ahead and all that and all that. So I wholeheartedly agree with you, but here's been my point i I know a lot of successful people when I was a kid i I lived in a section of Toronto with, known as the bridal path, which was where the rich folks lived right my, my my parents did well at that point in time and here's what I can tell you most children of very wealthy parents are not ambitious they don't go out there and try to better themselves they don't go out there and take the fortune that their parents left them and multiply it 50-fold. He took a $200 million fortune that his father, Fred Trump, left, which, by the way, not all of that was given to him. And he turned it into a $10 billion fortune. So that impressed me right off the top. And then he jumped into what's been called the deepest field of political talent in American history, the Republican primary field of 2016. And he wiped the floor with these guys. He crushed them. He 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 didn't just win. He won so big, win bigly, is the title of your of your of your book says, that that it absolutely took my breath away. So there's no question he knows a thing or, or two about how to persuade people. So, Scott, would it be okay if we kind of went through the parts of your book and have you just comment on some of these before I ask you some of the more typical questions I ask? Mm-hmm. Sure. So in part one, you talk about why facts are are overrated. Okay. So Talk to our listener about that and why that's an important thing for them to know about when it comes to persuasion.
0: Well, first of all, facts are very important to outcomes. If you walk in front of a truck and the truck hits you, that's a fact and you're pretty unhappy about it. (laughs) But in terms of, so when I say facts don't matter, I mean, in terms of our decision-making, we want them to matter and we want to know the facts, but we're so uh, amazingly bad at knowing what the real facts are and even worse, at employing them in our actual decision-making, that we really walk around under this illusion that we use facts and reason to make our decisions, but almost entirely our decisions are made by uh, confirmation bias, uh, just agreeing with who's on our team, and, and those sorts of forces. Now, that's the lesson that I learned when I first learned to become a hypnotist. To become a hypnotist you have to understand that the world is backwards from the way that most people see it. So most people see the world as, oh, people are rational and logical most of the time. Let's say 90% of the time we're rational, but 10% of the time we get a little crazy and everybody can recognize it when that's happening. That is opposite of what a hypnotist believes and opposite of what most cognitive scientists would tell you as well. The truth is, that on all these big decisions, you know, like world events and who we marry and what jobs we take and the big life decisions, we are making those decisions for largely irrational, emotional reasons. And then we rationalize them after the fact. So what hypnotists always believe to be true without the benefit of science, science has finally caught up invalidated, at least that element of hypnosis, that people are irrational by nature. So a trained persuader who knows that can come in and persuade in a way that someone who is who is, let's say, a captive to the idea that facts and reason are persuasive, that person doesn't have a chance against a trained persuader who knows that the opposite is true.
1: You know, that's fascinating. And I suppose that's a, a big part of why Donald Trump, when he was running in the primaries, was able to take on and defeat many of his opponents because they weren't trained persuaders in the way that he is, right? Yeah, very much so. The standard
0: politician just does standard politician things. And, you know, almost any of us could do a useful impression. Of a politician, yeah, you know, it would just be easy to copy what a politician does and how they talk, but you couldn't as easily do that with a trained persuader because there's deeper technique. There's engineering. You know, we'll probably talk about the president's uh, nicknames that he gives to people. Those are not random. Those are deeply engineered, and we could talk about that later if you like.
1: Actually. It's funny that you mentioned that because that was going through my head as the next thing to ask you about is those nicknames and how well they stuck, how how they helped him vanquish a number of his foes. So he taught he 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 spoke of Lil Marco, lying Ted, Crooked Hillary, Low Energy Jeb. Let's talk about those for a bit because they're fun. Yeah. So the, the first
0: one that came on the scene was low energy Jeb. And that was the moment that I was positive he was going to win. All right. I was pretty sure before that, but that was that really locked it down for me, because there was so much uh, technique in that nickname that was invisible to the untrained. So the first thing is that he picks something that he's good at and the other person's not so good at. He's high energy compared to just about anybody. That's (laughs) true. And Jeb's advantage was that he seemed like this cool, collected, experienced executive. And I have to say that's exactly how I saw him. But the moment that the president reframed him as low energy – And I started to see him compare to the energy that Trump was bringing to his campaign. That contrast can't leave your head. Once it's in there, it just doesn't leave. And the other thing that the president does, or the candidate Trump was doing, is that he would pick something that has a physical element to it. And and you would be reminded every time you saw the person or or heard about the person. Because you saw Jeb, and then every time after that you'd say, yeah, that is a little bit lower energy, at least than the president. And so it was confirming the whole way. Likewise, Crooked Hillary... Uh, is a, a little bit of a reference to her physicality because she was older and had trouble walking upstairs unattended and stuff. So you can imagine that her, she, her spine was a little crooked. But it also had this element of uh, future confirmation bias because you knew in the course of a campaign she would be accused of all manner of crooked behavior from emails to you know, who knows what. And, and sure enough, that happened. Likewise with Lion Ted. Uh, Lion Ted Cruz, unfortunately has a face that looks like uh, a director would cast that person as the crooked, evil person in a movie. So he's got a physicality that suggests, you know, his B.D.I.s eyes don't look so honest. Now, I'm not saying anything about Ted Cruz. I have no idea about his actual honesty, but just the physicality matches the nickname. And because it was a political race, you knew he would be accused of lying because they all are in the future absolutely, and it would would reinforce the nicknames. So his nicknames uh, try to match a physicality. They try to highlight an advantage he has compared to them. And it uh, also is engineered for a future confirmation bias. Now you compare that to all the people who tried and failed to give nicknames both to uh, the president and to any other people. And you saw that other people just couldn't do it. They they would try, but it just didn't work for anybody else, and that's not an accident. That's that's the difference between technique and just saying, "Well, this sounds fun. I'll I'll use this nickname. It rhymes, or,
1: or whatever else." Yeah, you know that's that's brilliant because. It sounds to me that you hit the nail on the head. Donald Trump used technique in order to diminish his opponents. And his opponents just were trying on what they thought would be a a funny sounding schoolyard name that in general didn't really stick. But yeah, yeah. Some of the some of the bad attempts Were uh,
0: They tried to come up with Dangerous Donald, trying to play up the fact that he'd have his finger on the nuclear codes. But the problem was that his base wanted somebody dangerous. So they made the classic mistake of picking a word that could be flipped to a positive too easily. Now look at the president's nicknames. How do you flip Low Energy, Crooked, and Lion to a positive? It can't be done. But dangerous was so easily flipped to a positive. They're like, yeah, of course we need somebody dangerous. We're fighting ISIS. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So people were making just obvious mistakes for at least for someone who would be trained in persuasion. These were just huge, obvious mistakes. But they're not obvious to anyone who's not trained.
1: Yeah, and, and that's fascinating. And for someone listening to this, what's what's, what's important and impressive about this book is it, it uses the case study of Donald Trump as a master persuader, but it shows you how you can learn some of these techniques for yourself and apply them in your business. You spoke about this thing that you called the persuasion stack. Could you expand on that for a little bit, Scott? Yeah, so stack in this sense means a combination
0: of talents that if you put them together, they're they're extraordinarily strong even if each talent individually maybe the person isn't the best in the world at they're just pretty good so in the president's case he's got a he's got a strong sense of humor that's always good He's tall. He's got a physicality about him that makes you not want to look away. He, he's got the the voice. He's got the theatrical presentation. He's got the full set of, um, you know, optimism and specific tools of persuasion. He's got a risk profile that I've never seen before. I mean, his ability to withstand just withering criticism, the kind that would make anybody else crawl into a ball and just go away, is a talent. That's something you learn over time, and he's clearly learned it. And when you start putting all of these things together, you say to yourself, all right, well, he might not be the smartest person who's ever run for president, but he's really, really smart. He might not be the most knowledgeable person about policy, but he seems to know enough you know and you could go right down the line and you say well not the best in the world but that's really good too uh, and it's the combination of those skills that makes him powerful
1: yeah that's 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 really bang on, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to studying Trump and, and what you can learn from him in oh, business.
0: Yeah. Uh, and let me add one that I forgot, which is his understanding of business models and business in general and negotiating. He wrote a book on negotiating. Uh, those those work really well with persuasion. So that especially works well together.
1: Yeah, that's true. You know, for, for me, uh, Uh, Having seen him speak a few times before he ever announced he was going to run for president, uh, I I was just impressed by how even though he wasn't the most naturally talented speaker and even though I'd seen him deliver the same talk four times, I was still riveted to what he had to say. And I think it's because he was utilizing his entire persuasion stack if you will. Yes. Uh, Yeah. You know, one of the biggest
0: criticisms you heard more early on than, than recently is that he was just a reality TV star. Wow. He's a reality TV star running for president. That makes no sense. But what we've learned is that was just one part of his talent stack and his knowledge of how to, you know, hold the camera and do all the things that you need to do to be a reality TV star. He managed to, combine the world of reality TV with politics and actually make it work. And he, and in, in, in so doing, he created a sport that only he can play because the other politicians can only do the political part. But he's coming in with a whole reality TV layer on top of the political part, which he just owns. So if he takes anybody up to the theatrical level, where let's say they're trying to come up with their own nickname – or they're trying to imitate the way he can hold an audience, they, they're they just fish out of water and, and they're going to fail. A few have tried and they quickly retreat. So he's got an entire dimension, this reality TV. I'll, I'll call it a theatrical dimension because he thinks in terms of story, theater, uh, spectacle, and holding the imagination. And... W- His critics say, well, those are all bad things because that has nothing to do with running the country and being political. But what we've learned and what seemed obvious to me from the start is that these are really, really complementary skills. I mean, as complementary as you could ever
1: imagine. So that's part of his power. It is. And it, it, it strikes me that if you're the leader of a country, any country, even one that's not a democracy, the ability to powerfully persuade has just got to help you be more effective in doing your job and getting your policy aims accomplished, so yeah, yeah, and
0: more than persuade is just you know step one of persuasion is getting people's attention, so you can't persuade until they're paying attention. He gets people's attention and holds it like nobody ever has honestly, <laughs> you know it's true uh, yeah. So so that alone would make him important. But then once he has your
1: attention, he knows what to do with it. And that's, that's what makes it really special. You know, you were talking about uh, him being a reality TV star and knowing how to use things like camera and uh, positioning himself in order to create spectacle and story. There was another American president who wasn't a reality TV star, but he was a movie star. And he did a pretty good job of that. That's Ronald Reagan. How would you compare uh, Reagan's persuasion abilities to Trump's? Well, Reagan
0: was amazing. His actor chops came in handy. I mean, he would hold the stage like nobody's business. He, he had that affable personality, that, that natural charisma. He had the size, the look. Yeah, he, he had the whole package. But on top of that, uh, what President Trump brings, he, you know, he brings all of that. Plus, on top of that, he's got the business mind, the negotiating mind. He's—he's uh, he's probably, I would say, Reagan is about 75 percent of what Trump has, just on the talent level,
1: uh, talent to be president specifically. Interesting, I never thought of it that way. although Reagan was uh, a negotiator because he was the head of the, the Screen Actors Guild for quite a few years and he he used to say negotiating with the Soviets was a cinch after I had to sit in a room with Harry Warner, right? <laughs> so, yeah, actually that, that
0: is a good point. Um, President Trump literally wrote the book with obviously a, a ghostwriter, but clearly those are his ideas and you know his priorities and stuff. So I, I think he's a little more committed. To the the practice of negotiating, so I w- I would rank his skill there higher. But you're right, uh, Reagan was
1: no slouch in that department. Absolutely not. So, in part four, you you talked about. Godzilla getting in the game. And by Godzilla, you meant Robert Cialdini, the legendary author of Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, a business book that I like so much that I've read it three times. And I normally don't read any business book more than once. So tell me why you think Cialdini potentially being in the game even things up a little bit for a while for the Clinton campaign. So going back to the... uh
0: the i think around may of 2016 when bernie finally dropped out bernie had an unusually successful campaign for what people would have imagined coming from him in other words he was unusually persuasive and in fact he had the number 1 persuasive political ad somebody judged and i agreed with that by the way and until that point Hillary Clinton's persuasion skills, as I observed them, were close to zero. There was just no persuasion talent beyond normal politics. But Bernie had something extra going on. The moment Bernie left uh, Hillary Clinton's persuasion game went from zero to weapons grade. I speculated at the time that there might have been some master persuader, as I call them, somebody who was a cognitive science, somebody who really knew this stuff, who might have been persuade or might have been consulting for Bernie, and then switched to Clinton. Uh, and I noticed that with the word dark, as soon as the uh, Republican political uh, convention there was underway, you started hearing. Uh, all the pundits used the word dark as if they had all gotten the memo, which in fact they had literally gotten the memo.
1: <laughs> so, it, you know,
0: it, it, it wasn't an accident. I don't think anybody would pretend it was. And the word dark is a level of skill that is almost academic. You know, it, it's a level above my my pay grade. I, I could recognize it, but I don't think I would have been able to come up with it on my own because dark Captured everybody's worst feelings. So whatever you were scared about with uh, Candidate Trump, you could read that into it. And that's there's a lot of technique in there. So so dark primes you for a bad feeling, and then everything you see starts to uh, because of confirmation bias starts to fit into that model. It was very powerful, and so I thought, well, there's somebody advising, and I guessed because I had. I'd read a, a pre-publication copy of Robert Cialdini's book, pre And I thought I recognized the technique, uh, this word dark, as something that could have come right out of that book. And so I speculated, and the reason I used the word Godzilla because I blogged about it and I said Godzilla was in the game if I'm if I'm correct because I didn't want to name him because I wasn't sure there are a lot of people who are cognitive scientists so what were the odds that I could you know reach into into the the darkness so to speak and pick out the one person who would come up with that now I don't know because he has never confirmed that uh, he was advising the campaign but I know he was asked and his and his uh, response was no comment Now, it seems to me, if you are not consulting a campaign and somebody asks you if you are, that you would very easily say, no, I'm not. The only time you would ever say no comment is if you were. All right. Because you typically you're not going to confirm that if you're just an advisor, and especially that kind of advisor. You'd want to stay on the sidelines. So some people close to Robert Gialdini have said through third parties. So this is not the highest level of verification, but they, they have confirmed that he was consulting for uh, Clinton at some
1: point. You know, it does make sense, especially I think in the book you mentioned that he was on an advisory board for the Obama campaign. In uh, 2012. And I I remember the timing of that campaign because for a while it looked like Romney had a chance of beating Obama. And then – Obama's campaign seemed to all of a sudden get way better at persuasion, and Romney's seemed to <laughs> get way worse, if that was even possible at that point in time. And, and it went from a, a race where it was looking like Obama was going to lose re-election to a race in which he won. And Cialdini's name being on that advisory board really definitely got my attention. Yeah, I didn't
0: even know that he was consulted he had consulted for Obama when I identified him as a potential consultant for uh, Clinton. So once I saw that he had actually been involved in, in democratic uh, politics before, I felt pretty confident about my, my prediction. Absolutely. I mean, it's well said.
1: So, Scott, in part four, you talk about how to use persuasion in business as well as in politics. And since most of the people listening to this podcast are probably fascinated by politics, especially with the reality TV show president uh, in office using all the wonderful bag of, of tricks that he's doing to, uh, to change the whole political world around, they're even more interested in how to use weapons-grade persuasion techniques in commercial settings so that they can be more successful. So can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you would advise people who are coaches, consultants, solopreneurs, that they can learn from reading your book and apply inside their business? Well, the, the macro advice
0: uh, is that the, the skill of persuasion is terribly important and also easy to learn. So uh, I would recommend my book Win Bigly for tiptoeing in, and Robert Cialdini's two books Influence and Persuasion that you've mentioned uh, as sort of the the starting points. Then you do want to look at Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, maybe the book Habit. Um, Charles Duhigg, if you. Uh, yes, yep. and if you if you Google the words persuasion reading list, you'll see my full list of books. So that's that's the place to start. Uh, but let me give you some g- sort of general guidelines. Please, uh, visual visual persuasion is always more powerful than other forms because we're, our brains are are that uh, we prioritize our visual sense. So uh, when the president says, "I'm going to build a wall, wall, wall." He could have said, and a bad persuader would have said, well, we're going to use a variety of mechanisms, some of it technology, you know, it depends on the terrain, and there would be no picture in your head. The the president very consistently, and this is part of the technique that's easy to notice once you're 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 skilled in this stuff, is he goes for the visual almost every time. So whenever you can, he goes visual. So you, and you should do that too, whether it's tweeting or advertising, marketing, et cetera. A picture picture is what you want. Uh, But there are also things like repetition, keeping things simple, you know, don't confuse people. And and then you also want to associate anything that has a positive feel with what you're doing because people conflate any thoughts that they hold in their brain at the same time. So if you were trying to sell sneakers and you knew that your customers love puppies. You would say, hey, puppies are great. Wouldn't you like to buy some sneakers? <laughs> puppies wear sneakers. Don't you love puppies? Puppies are great. How about buying our sneakers? Now, even if a person watching the, the commercial, uh, hypothetically, said to themselves, well, you're just just trying to manipulate me by by mentioning puppies, it still works. It, it, being aware of the technique makes no difference at all because uh, these are automatic connections that your your mind creates. <laughs> one of the other things that i i always try to recommend is that it's easy for people to talk about what's going wrong and what's negative because our brains go there we're we're naturally wired to see what's wrong. Because if you spend all your time looking at what's right, you'd be exhausted because your environment is mostly things that are going right. So your, your brain sense. is wired to find the exception, which is usually the stuff going wrong. And it's easy to start talking about that and get bogged down in the negative. And you don't realize that you're you're draining the energy and of whoever you're with, and you're making them want to spend less time with you, even if they don't consciously think that. So you want to be relentlessly positive whenever that's an option. You see that in President Trump's approach. Of course, he's got to say that the last person messed up everything and, and things are terrible, but he very quickly adds on, we're going to make America great. I'm going to fix everything. It'll be the best it's ever been, etc. So he's, he's always focusing on the positive. That's not accidental. A lot of people don't know that his, his pastor, When he was a kid in Queens, New York, was the famous Norman Vincent Peale, who was one of the most influential uh, writers in in that time period in America, and he promoted this power of positive thinking, which essentially promoted the idea that, that the way you thought about success and the way you thought about your world and the way you thought about yourself were hugely big variables in actually being successful. And you see the president just relentlessly optimistic. And yesterday I saw that the small business uh, optimism level hit the highest level it's ever hit.
1: Yeah, I saw history. that too,
0: that was incredible. And, yeah, and when people focus on the president's approval polls, they're they're looking in the wrong pocket because presidential approval doesn't mean what it used to be. In today's divided world, Presidential approval is just like uh, taking atten- attendance. All right, are you Democrat? Raise your hand. Are you Republican? Raise your hand. All right, that's the end of the polling. But the the business, small business uh, confidence level. Is a pretty direct indication that the small business people who are really, really close to you know business uh, see all good things happening, and most of that is coming from the president's persuasion. Plus, he came off a strong base with Obama. I give Obama lots of credit for, for you know, fixing things since 2009. But the president clearly has added an accelerant on
1: top of that. You know, that's a very good point. And one thing I was fascinated by in preparing for our interview today is I've been following his negotiations with uh, congressional leaders from both parties about this whole immigration thing pretty closely. And I'm noticing that media on both sides of the political spectrum are both angry with him. People on the right, like uh, Breitbart News, are angry because he's saying yes to DACA says, yeah, I want to make this a bill of love. And they're saying, are you like Jeb Bush now? And they conflated a picture of him with Jeb Bush. Because you, you remember mm-hmm. Jeb Bush said that uh, illegal immigration was an act of love or whatever back in the day. And, uh, yeah, and, right. and then- People on the left are saying, but he wants to end chain migration, and he wants to end all these other policies that they love and adore. <laughs> right. So the, the the leftist media outlets and the rightist media outlets are both hammering in on him. But when I saw the visuals of him sitting there sounding so reasonable, sounding like he's trying to put the country together, I thought, this guy's not just going to get reelected in 2020. <laughs> he's going to expand his majority. Yeah, yeah. The
0: it's fascinating to watch him work because, as you said, the the far left and the far right are are all angry for their different reasons. But even as they're angry about their specific interests, they recognize what's happening and they recognize that he's this uh, unique character. He's positioned himself so that he can be Nixon goes to China, the, using the overused analogy. There, uh, he can make some. Um, he can negotiate things in the middle that just no other president could do and survive, because he's first of all um, positioned himself as a negotiator, and you know, that's sort of a primary you know uh, image we have of him. And so we would be surprised if he didn't do that. And I don't think anybody thinks that he could have held his uh, his far right positions on immigration and expected to get any bills passed. That you know nobody really expected
1: that could have happened. I don't think. I think you're right about that. And yet he's moving some immigration policies forward that presidents of both parties have been given lip service to for at least 20 years. I mean, Obama, the both Bushes and the Clintons, uh, Bill Clinton, I should say. And and he's moving them ahead. I I think just like he did with that tax bill, he's going to get a big victory on this bill and uh, it's going to just set him up even better for when he's running for re-election. because he's going to just point back and say none of these other politicians could do that whoever happens to be the flavor of the month whether it's oprah that would be a fascinating study by the way to have trump run against oprah in 2020 or any of the more traditional politicians running against them i think he's going to find ways to just run circles around them well just consider this he, he lapped the field of both
0: Republicans and, and the best that the Democrats had to offer. Many said that Hillary Clinton was the most you know prepared candidate of all time. and Prepared uh, for what, though? <laughs> it, well, yeah. I mean, in, in retrospect, we're all geniuses and say, ah, she was such a weak candidate. But that's only because she ran against Trump. She would have won against any other Republican. I agree with and that. And we would have been said, well— and and now we'd be looking back and say, well, it was obvious she was the most prepared. Of course, she won. <laughs> um, but but now imagine what he did with no experience against the best field that's ever been, you know, put against him. And now if he runs again, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure he'll decide to do that, but if he runs again, he's going to be running as an incumbent. <laughs> it's not even going to be fair. It's not going to be I fair. Would ha- I would hate to run against him under that situation, especially if the economy stays good and you know ISIS stays beaten down. And, and by 2020, the odds of North Korea playing nice with us in a way we've never seen before is pretty high at this point. You know, yeah, I, I think I that's moved from unlikely to likely at this point. And if he has that working for him and a good economy, you,
1: it doesn't matter who runs. It just won't matter. It, it won't matter. And I, I think he's going to win with a bigger majority. I think he's going to win states he didn't win last time and uh, I think you're right. It doesn't matter who's going to run against him. He's a master persuader, and I think there's a lot to be learned from reading your book and applying some of the things that he's been doing in politics and in business. And I read The Art of the Deal as well, by the way, a fascinating book, and I agree with you. Those are his ideas, not Tony Schwartz's. Maybe Tony's words, but they're uh, Donald Trump's ideas. This is going to really help the person listening to this podcast and buying your book, take their persuasion stack up a notch, I think, right? I'd like to at least be a commercial-grade persuader, and if possible, maybe one day I can aspire to be half as good as Trump. Yeah,
0: so I've got two books. One that that teaches you how to persuade yourself, essentially. That's my book, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. And then the new one, Win Bigly, is How to Persuade Other People. Now, the people who have read both of those books – Tell me that it completely altered their life and in a good way. They're having good results personally and professionally. And, you know, I know I'm the author, so of course I'm going to say my book is the best thing in the world, it's changing people. But I'm kind of past the point in my life. Where I'm just trying to sell the book. Uh, these last two were written with the the public interest in mind, and if you look at the reviews, you'll see that people are saying these are life-changing ways to look at the world. And uh, I agree with Norman Vincent Peale, who was also very influential on me for the same reasons that he influenced the president. Uh, I just you know read about him instead of sitting in the pew listening to him, and. I believe that the way you think about yourself and you, you, the way you frame the world, is everything in terms of your potential success.
1: I wholeheartedly agree, and I got to say, Win Bigley has been one of the seminal books on persuasion that I've ever read. I'm, I'm gonna go buy your other book, How, How to Fail at Almost Every, Everything and Still and and Still Succeed. I think that's gonna be great, and I and I and and not only that, Scott. I'm going to go buy 20 copies of your book and give it to some of my clients. That's how impressed wow. I am with the book. So, thank you. Uh, th- you're welcome. Uh, thank you. Thank you for writing it. So, let's just quickly switch gears a little bit to thought leadership. This has been such a fascinating conversation that I spent so much time on your book, way more than, than I normally would with somebody. But I'm just fascinated by this book and fascinated by the fact, Scott, that. You were one of the few lonely voices back in late 2015 and 2016. And I was reading some of your blog posts on this who predicted that Donald Trump was going to lap the field and win. And people ridiculed you. People who'd been big fans of yours said you're crazy, you didn't know what you were talking about, and and, and a lot worse things than that. And yet you were Hmm. right and they were wrong. You must have experienced some schadenfreude from this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know winning feels good there's there's no way around that it just feels good but as as you said i was I was way out on a branch I mean I' I'm on a limb I guess um you' on the leaves buddy you wrong. weren't just
1: on a branch you were on the leaves
0: <laughs> I was on the leaves yeah um but had I been wrong in my prediction, it would have been permanently the end of my career and reputation there's still a big hit because half the country hates trump and anybody who said anything good about him at any point but half the country at least respects the prediction at this point so i'm i'm half redeemed and if the president does a good job uh, i can
1: be maybe three
0: quarters redeemed and that's about as good as i could do i think
1: well i'll I'll tell you um I think history will fully redeem you. And history has has a tendency to do that with presidents. I mean, I'm old enough to, I'm 50 years old. I'm old enough to remember the 80s and even the 70s. And I remember people hated Ronald Reagan back then hated. I mean he had his fans and you know most of the country loved him a lot of the country loved him not most. But he was hated in some departments. Some of the same people who are singing his praises these days absolutely excoriated him back then. And yet mm. time has shown that he was a unique president. His policies were pretty much bang on. He essentially speaking, he won the cold war and he uh, returned America to its former position of confidence. And uh, and even Democrats today recognize that. And I think over time, your prediction will have a similar effect to people. And what, what I find interesting is you never claim to be the biggest partisan of Donald Trump. You never, ever claim that. And in fact, I've never gotten that sense from you. I've gotten the sense that you're an admirer of his talents at persuasion more than you necessarily support all his policies. In fact, what you said in your book was that You're super social liberal, right? Yeah, yeah. In in most circumstances, it
0: it would be hard for me to uh, show any kind of support for a conservative because my own political beliefs are pretty far left. I call myself an ultra liberal, which we could talk about (laughs) later. But this was a, a unique situation in a unique time. Almost all of our big social questions have been solved. So, we, you know, we've got gay marriage and President Trump's fine with that. Uh, abortion is legal where it needs to be. And I don't really see that changing. And if it did, it would just be kicked to the states and they would make it legal because they have to. You know, and you can kind of go down the line. We've got a little question about marijuana but I don't really see the federal government, you know, cracking down even if they're tweaking the paperwork and and scaring us a little bit, I think Congress will end up, you know, doing something positive there. So there isn't much to be afraid of on the on the social end for conservatives. They they no longer are the the big different don't change anything, I can't live with this thing you're doing kind of party. They've sort of become the let's let's get the government out of your life if we can. And that seems to extend to, and to a large extent, extend to our personal choices in a way it didn't used to. You know, 20 years ago, the conservatives wanted to get in your bedroom and tell you what to do. You, you just don't even hear that anymore. That's, that's basically not a thing anymore. Uh, so it's easier to back a, a candidate who's in the Republican Party, especially one who used to be a Democrat, especially one. It was more about the practicality, more about the, the, more about the economics, more about what works, uh, and he found a home on the conservative side. But I would argue that his, his policies are going to be the kind that, if they work, are going to work for everybody. If the economy is good, everybody's good. If ISIS is defeated, everybody's happy. 100%. If North Korea plays nice, we're all we're all better off. And then, you know, gay marriage won't change. Yeah, I, I, it's not going it to change.
1: No, he doesn't want it to change. It's not a fight he's going to revisit. And frankly, I, I I can't see any Republican other than maybe Ted Cruz even making a, a show of an effort toward that. Uh, it, yeah. So, so so just putting a, a cap on that.
0: So where I call myself ultra liberal is because I like Bernie. I would like to see you know health care for everybody and you know education for everybody. I just don't know how to get there. And taxes probably are not the answer. But there may be a way to change systems, change technology, focus on startups, innovate. You know, I think we should make it a national priority to get as close to that as we can. But I think you could even do that within a Republican structure, because there's nothing I mentioned that would be anything but positive for a conservative. A hundred percent. A hundred percent.
1: Okay, so... Again, let's quickly switch gears into thought leadership per se. So there are five pillars, if you will, of thought leadership. And I I just would like to go through them with you and get your comments on them uh, briefly. So the first is that to be recognized as a thought leader, you need to have some world-class intellectual property. So I believe that you do. And especially you've demonstrated that with your latest book. Can you comment on that?
0: (laughs) Well... I would not uh, consider myself in the class of intellectuals. I'm a very good, popular communicator, which I think would be a, a, an academic or intellectual level below, you know, let's say uh, Nasim, you know Talib, you know Nicholas Nasim Talib, sure. uh, or Jordan Peterson, you know, people are actually academics, so i'm not I'm not in that class. But I do have some advantages in that my communication style, is simple and persuasive because of this set of persuasion tools I, I possess. So that's useful, but I, I would never say intellectual as a label for anything I'm doing.
1: Understood. What I mean by intellectual property is that you've got some unique ideas and unique thoughts that you've presented in a unique fashion that's helped you stand out in the marketplace. And I would argue you've done that. You've certainly done that with Wynn Bigley. It definitely got my attention. And e- even through your, your comic strip character, Dilbert, you brought a lot of lessons home to people around the culture and corporate America and so forth. What, what would your feelings be on that? Well...
0: I would agree with you that I've introduced a lot of new ideas, and I've done a good job in some cases of communicating them. My take on new ideas is that diversification of ideas is a good thing. So your your portfolio of national ideas should be enriched and refilled as much as possible. And then I believe the good ideas uh, end up eating the bad ideas over time because good ideas will rise, you know, on almost on their own. So if you can just seed them, and I feel that's what I do well, I seed them with new ideas. The bad ones die quickly; nobody remembers them. The good ones
1: rise and maybe start influencing people in a good way. I love it. I love it. So the next pillar, which kind of builds off of intellectual property, is that as a result of this, you want to have a preeminent position. You want to be a preeminent person in your field. So I I would argue that especially when it comes to persuasion with, with your latest book and the fact that you went so far out on a limb, that you've got to be recognized as one of the preeminent thought leaders when it comes to persuasion and explaining persuasion to the general public? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I would say I'm a, a newbie to the field of persuasion, and I don't put myself in the category of, of again, the academics, the, the real working cognitive scientists, the, the professors and such who would have a, maybe a, a wider understanding. I, I'm commercial grade but because I use persuasion successfully and have, in fact, used it successfully to enter this new field, which is one of the things I, I use as a way to identify somebody who knows persuasion, we, we tend to be able to cross fields and start at the top of the new field fairly quickly. You saw, you saw President Trump change fields several times and dominate different, completely different fields. And uh, that's a common thing you see with people who have a, a full stack of persuasion talents. We, we can often do that. So I would say I've gotten some notoriety. I took a bigger risk than most people. That sticks out in people's minds. That was intentional as well. Absolutely. And I, I would say I'm, I've earned credibility but I don't know how you define the top of the field. I would still put the academics
1: at the top of the field. Well, I didn't say top of the field. I, I said one of the preeminent, right? You didn't need to be number one. But here's one of my mentors is a man named Matt Church. He's from Australia. And Matt Church created a, a, a program in a community in Australia called uh, Thought Leaders Global and Thought Leaders Business School. Here's how he defines a thought leader. He says an expert is someone who knows something. A thought leader is someone who is known for knowing something. So by that definition I'd say Scott Win Bigley is definitely in my mind at least puts you on the map as being known for knowing persuasion and knowing what excellent <laughs> persuasion looks like.
0: Yeah I would say that's true. I was watching Anthony Scaramucci last night on CNN and he he even mentioned Win Bigley. So it's it's become part of the conversation for at least the people who follow politics closely.
1: So I I would agree with you to that extent, yes. Okay, terrific. So the next pillar that we talk about is you need to be, you need to have clarity. You need to have clarity on your message, and you need to have clarity on who your target audience is. So would you comment on that and how you've done that in this particular instance and how you did it with the Dilbert comic strip? Well, in the
0: case of writing about politics, my audience became fairly quickly Trump supporters because that was the class of people who were uh, starving for any good word about their candidate <laughs> Makes in, sense. in a world where then 95 percent of the coverage was negative. And they were also looking for a reason for why they liked him. I think people decided they mm. liked him before they knew why and I added a layer of explanation for what was going on and why this was working and why, why they could like him and feel good about it. So I, I built a natural audience that way. And, of course, in Dilbert, there's a natural audience of, of people who work in business and especially office jobs and technology jobs. So I would agree that you can't have a clean, crisp message that's generic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's difficult. I'm, I'm sure it could be done for some, some situations, but in the situations I'm talking about, if you have a comic that's just sort of generic, it's really tough to, to make that work. You, you almost always have to say, these are the people I'm going for I'll, I'll write this for them. Absolutely.
1: And the next pillar is what I call leverage. Leverage is important because leverage is taking your thought leadership or your expertise in one field and being able to move it to another field or moving across different platforms. So it would, for example, be someone who is a coach or a consultant also doing some speaking, also doing an online program or writing a book and so forth. What would your comment be on how you've utilized leverage in order to expand your reach, and expand the types of audiences that you get to speak to?
0: Well, that's very close to the talent stack idea where you put together talents that work well together. So I've, I've been a professional speaker. I've written books. I write comic strips. Now I'm doing periscopes and interviews and stuff. All of those things work really well together with hypnosis. And weirdly, with my background, uh, I also was an economics major, have an MBA from Berkeley, spent a lot of time in the corporate world. And so seeing how business works, how economics work, and economics are largely driven by psychology. uh, Those things really, really work well together. And it allows me to move across fields, uh, as you know, you've observed. I went from corporate America to cartoonist to political pundit. Uh, I've also been a, a speaker. I've done licensing. Um, done a number of other things. And uh, yeah, if you've got the right combination of persuasion skills, it's easy to to leverage, as you say, or to
1: cross fields. Fantastic. And then finally, the last pillar of thought leadership is having the right mentors and having the right peers. Can you talk about what role having good mentors and peers has played in your life and in your success? Well, I've heard it said that,
0: uh, you know, the old saying that when the student is ready, the the teacher will appear. Mm -hmm. So I always wonder if we're looking in the past and saying, well, that person was there at the right time. and But maybe something would have, good would have happened anyway. So there's a little bit of revisionist history here in deciding who your mentors were. But it's, the odd thing is, I found the people most influential to me were not necessarily trying. So, for example, um, one of my biggest influences in my life was my college roommate, who I came from a very small town, and I didn't really even know how to be a human being in the civilized world. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm simplifying, but not that much. Sure. And I simply I simply learned how to deal with people and just a whole bunch of things just by association. Uh, but if you asked him, did he have any influence on me? He'd probably say no. And yeah, he's one of the biggest influences in my life. Wow. And likewise, my my first editor who called me and said when I'd submitted sample comics to try to become a syndicated cartoonist, most people rejected me. Well, all the other companies rejected me. But one editor, her name was Sarah, she called up and said she wanted to uh, offer me a contract to be a syndicated cartoonist. And I immediately started apologizing because I said, you know, I don't think my artistic talent is good enough. Maybe I'd have to find an artist to do the drawing for me. And she said, No, your drawing's fine, and I swear to God, I had a Wizard of Oz moment, where you know when the Wizard tells you you are smart or you do have a heart, suddenly you have one. Wow! My the qualit the quality of my drawing went from you know a a D as in D as in dog to C plus, you know B minus almost the same week wow. because somebody who who had the authority to tell me that I was good or bad told me I was fine. And then, of course, over time, you know, it got better just with practice. But the impact of that one sentence, I mean, and it might have been like three words. So no, it's fine. But coming from that source changed my life. That's incredible. And, it, you know, and certainly, it was nothing that she was trying to do. It was, she was just
1: answering a question. You know, that's incredible, and it's it's it, it's such a powerful point because at at the right pivotal moment in, in your life, someone gave you affirmation, someone gave you acknowledgement, someone in a position of authority, and really, as thought leaders, that's a big part of what we can do for, for the people that depend on us, the people that come to us for advice, for, for sucker, for, for belief. And, and, and it appears that you provided that for your audience during the election campaign. Mm-hmm. Can, can, can I give you a quick little story that goes back right to
0: this point? Please, please. Um, before I was syndicated, I decided that my corporate life wasn't working out and I was looking for something else. I thought I wanted to try to become a cartoonist, but I didn't know the first thing about starting. This was pre-internet where you couldn't just look things up easily. And one day I came home and I was flipping through the channels on TV and there was a PBS show about how to become a cartoonist, of all things, exactly when I wanted to know that. How crazy is that? But I missed most of the show. Yeah, but I missed the whole show. I caught the last five minutes and then the closing credits to figure out what it must have been about. So I, I quickly wrote down the name of the host of the show as it went by in the closing credits. And I figured out how to send him a letter, you know, his address. And I, I said, uh, I missed your show, but I'd like to become a cartoonist. Can you give me some advice? And a few weeks later, I get a handwritten two-page letter from the host of the show. His name was Jack Casty, professional cartoonist. And he said, well, you want to buy this book and use these materials. He answered all my questions. And then he gave me this advice. He said, it's a very competitive field and you're going to get rejected a lot but don't give up. And I thought, "Oh, that's great." So I bought the book, got the materials, put together some of my best cartoons and sent them off to the the major magazines, you know, Playboy and um, you know, New Yorker, the places that did comics. And they came back all rejected in a few weeks. And I said, "Well, okay, I tried. Did my best. Took all my art materials, packed them up, put them in a the closet, and I felt good that I tried. I tried my hardest. It didn't work out, but that's that's life. I just moved on. A year later, a full year later, I go to my mailbox, and there's a letter from Jack Cassidy, the cartoonist who had given me the original advice. And I hadn't even thanked him for his first letter. We'd had no contact in that year. So it was really weird that I get a second letter just a year later. And I opened the letter and it said that he was cleaning his office and he came across my letter. that was my original letter that was in the bottom of some stack. And he said he was just writing to make sure that I hadn't given up. Wow. And that was the only, that was the only reason he wrote. There was, there was no other, other point, no question, no other statement. He was just writing to make sure that I hadn't given up because he said he saw something, you know, in my work because I'd sent him some samples. And I had given up, but I thought, well, maybe he knows something I don't know. You know, he's a professional. So I took my materials out of the closet, put together some sample comics with this little character called Dilbert, who was loosely based on my coworkers at the time. And I sent them off, and the rest is history. That's when Dilbert became syndicated. And if you trace that back, that one letter of encouragement from that one mentor— completely unsolicited didn't expect it didn't didn't know it was coming changed my the entire arc of my career because I got rich I have changed quite a few other people's lives I helped another cartoonist get started you know, paying it forward. Pearls Before Swine uh, is a comic that's one of the one of the biggest ones. Wow. I mean, and I helped him with his, his career. But that also gave me the platform that allowed me to talk about President Trump in a way that probably had some impact on the outcome. So this one bit of advice from 1988 is still rippling through the universe, and it's getting bigger, not smaller. So if you're wondering should I give this little bit of affirmation to somebody who, who deserves it? And you're thinking it, if you're thinking it, that you could give this person a little affirmation, little, little encouragement and you don't say it, it's almost immoral. Wow. Because the benefits it's free to you. Doesn't cost you a thing to give that little bit of encouragement. If you mean it, you know, only if you mean it and it can, it can change the world. Um, and that's not an exaggeration
1: in the bit, in the slightest. Scott, I got to tell you, this is not typically how my podcast goes. If you ever listen to any of the other episodes, and I encourage you to listen to a couple of them, I think you'll like them. But uh, this has been one of my favorite interviews of all time. And the story you just told me was one that I needed to hear, not, not, not just for myself, but also in terms of some of the people that I'm mentoring, including my two sons. I have two boys. Uh, one's nine, one's 11. Uh, they're both wonderful boys. And, um, the nine-year-old in particular, his mom and I are, aren't together anymore though. We have a great relationship. I know that it's affected him and he's very sensitive. I'm going to call him today and I'm going to tell him how awesome he is. And in particular, how awesome he is at the sports he plays. He's a great soccer player and a hockey player. Because I just got a gut feeling that it's the right thing to do today for him and his life. So thank you. Um, I'm very encouraged by that, and thank you for saying that. My pleasure. And you know what? Um, maybe your next book should be on this topic. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's an important one. Just a thought. So uh, that's that's pretty that's pretty good thought, by the way. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. I have one of, I have some of those once in a long while. So, so Scott, we like to end off every episode by asking you our guest, what are your top 3 expert action steps, your your hacks if you will, that you recommend our listener take on in their life and their business so they can move to the next level. I would say you
0: want to learn the difference between a system And a goal, I often say that goals are for losers because until you reach your goal, if you're lucky enough to, you're in a continual state of losing until you are lucky enough to maybe accomplish. But a system is something you do every day that makes you better at something and makes your options greater. So, for example, going to college as a system, because you don't know exactly where that will lead, but it makes your odds of everything better. So my book kind of failed everything and still went big, talks about systems versus goals. That's the the main theme of it. The next thing I'd say is take care of your physical body because your your instrument is really what's driving your mind. We often think of the world backwards. We think that our mind just sort of comes up with thoughts and our attitudes just come out of nothing. But the science will tell you and your experience will tell you that if you get your body in the right place, your mind will follow. So if you take care of your fitness, and it's good to know systems, so systems for fitness would be good as well as fit, uh, systems for diet. So learn about diet and exercise uh, as a lifelong learning activity uh, as opposed to I'm going to lose 10 pounds tomorrow. Just, just think of it as uh, using information and knowledge to increase your fitness because that's ultimately how it works. The more you know, the more right stuff you do. And then I guess that was two things. And then the third thing would be to pay attention to your talent stack. So whatever talents you have naturally or you have developed, ask yourself, what talents can you layer on top of that that will make you unique in the marketplace? Because if you're unique in the marketplace and valuable, then you can command a a premium pay and you can become more valuable to yourself. And if you do everything right, someday
1: you can be valuable to other people. Those are Awesome expert action steps. I'm going to take all three of those on. That was amazing. Mm. So, listener, if you're listening to this, go buy Scott's two books How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win, and buy Win Bigly. And if you're one of my clients, I'm going to be buying 20 copies and giving them away to you. Scott, you're amazing. I really strongly believe in you. I strongly believe in your work. Uh, And and, and listener, again, buy a copy for yourself. Don't just buy a copy for yourself, though. Buy five copies of each book and give it to the people you care about the most in your life. Give it to some some of the people you love. Give it to some of your best clients because it's going to help transform their life. Scott, please come back to the show. I'd love to find other ways to be of service to you and to support you as well. And um, if you're listening to this show and you're wondering, do I have it in me to be the next Scott Adams? Do I believe in myself and my value enough to go out there? And if you've got some negative chatter going on in your head that's stopping you from acting, that's crushing your dream, I'm here to tell you, along with what Scott did for us in this interview, that you probably have what it takes. Go for your dream. Go for what you really want. I want to be like that gentleman who sent Scott that second unsolicited letter for you in this particular podcast episode. And I want to help you. And the way I want to help you is I can help you figure out what your intellectual property is worth in the marketplace. And the way that I can do that is by having a conversation with you. I've got a system, a specific breakthrough call system where we can go through that with you in 34, 45 minutes all you got to do in order to do that is go to ecircleacademy.com forward slash appointment and we can jump on a call we can figure that out either myself or a member of my team and we'd be honored to do that for you you deserve it and you deserve to have your fondest dreams come true scott adams thank you so much for being on the show it's been an honor to have you here sir thank you so much for having me i enjoyed it and i'd love to come back love to have you back That wraps up another episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest and his phenomenal books, please go to thethoughtleaderrevolution.com, take a look at our show notes. And if you've been wondering what your expertise is worth in the marketplace and you've been afraid and your fear has stopped you from fully pursuing your dream or fully realizing your dream, Jump on a call with us. Go to ecircleacademy.com forward slash appointment and let's help you get to the next level. Let us play the role for you that that incredible gentleman played for Scott back when he was starting his career as a cartoonist. Bye for now.